Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L O U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm D. Chupar. Hey there, folks, this is Don Flynn of the American Songster slapping the dap with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. A dynamic songster of the early years, having the quill wrapped and hung around his neck as he picks the guitar, Henry Thomas's songs represent the oldest tradition of American black music ever recorded. Along with the blues and ragtime, he played early minstrel songs, black spirituals, square dance tunes, hillbilly reels, waltzes, coon songs, story songs, work calls, stomp, and hollers, and pop songs of the day. Henry Thomas was one of the oldest black musicians who ever recorded 23 cuts on Vocalion Records between the years of 1927 and 29. His music is a great opportunity to hear what African-American traditional music sounded like near the end of the 19th century. Welcome to episode two of the Jack Dapper Blues podcast series in association with Lone Star Blues and Heritage Festival on Henry Thomas, a Texas blues legend, which features my recurring guest, the American songster, Dom Flemings. And it's it's a unique number because it hasn't been recorded uh, as that as, by that name uh, ever. The only person that's recorded actually is Guy Davis. He, he recorded it several years back. Mm. And so the I did find a recording of a song that was very similar, and the song was called Whoopty Liza Jane, which is a very well-known old-time number, and I'd heard it in a completely different context. And the recording I heard was of Bradley Kincaid, who was a very famous... Uh, he wasn't a country singer, but he was a singer of old-time ballads, like Cecil Sharp-style ballads, but he was like a precursor to, to Gene Autry. And so... He did like songs like Sourwood Mountain, John Henry, and a lot of the old time ballads, as well as a lot of sentimental songs. And Whoop De Liza Jane was one of his big numbers, as well as um, Barbara Allen was a number, another number he did that became very popular. But his version of Whoop De Liza Jane, to me, is the same structure as Run Molly Run, even though Henry Thomas when he records it, he's bringing a little bit more of a an African-American aesthetic of running the bass lines and singing a melody with bass lines that are implying the melody, while whoop Liza Jane has a very straight melody to it, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And that's one of the things with Henry Thomas, too. You can tell he started out as a singer because his guitar parts don't necessarily correlate all of the chord changes his voice implies. And so mm. a lot of that as well, where it'll almost seem like, you know, it'll almost seem like he's playing one chord on the guitar the entire time. But he's singing much more. He's singing a lot more melody. And um, he implies a lot of the melody behind the guitar. So it's it's really even interesting to hear him aesthetically approaching a song like Run, Molly, Run. I have to ask you this question, especially since you're a songster, I'm a bluesman, you're a songster. The reason why I make that distinction based on what you just said, because in theory, the word on the 
folklorists and ethnomusicologists and music history streets is that songsters played less musical changes as a way to keep their hands able to play one song for 45 minutes to an hour, Absolutely. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now with that being said, do you think as a songster and playing these songs for long periods of time, do you think that played part in the the separation from vocal changes and expressions and and instrument changes and expressions? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, see, and this is where I learned a lot of um, aesthetic uh, history of singing through old-timey music because it, one of the things uh, I, I got to know a, a wonderful scholar, Art Rosenbaum, and one of the things that his theories is that 90% of the music was all a cappella because people didn't have instruments. And that was actually what was out there in the world. But when they made the records, you know, an a cappella recording is not as compelling as an as a recording with instruments. And so right. they made records with instruments. And that was that became, of course, the trend for popular music in that way. And in, in some ways, you can hear sort of the transitional space that some of the the artists are are move are moving into because it, also to think about it these musicians don't have rules in which they work with that are the same as the rules we have now right and so it you know how a song is put together or how authentic it is or or how true it is to the composition i think that stuff was all up for grabs and so at times you find very complex musical ideas being presented but it's in a form that is uh not the same as a professional orchestra. And so Henry Thomas, again, toes that line because uh, one thing that, um, you know, one of the things that Stephen Colt mentions is that he can't keep rhythm. But to me, several of the songs, including, uh, I mean, uh, a perfect example is Run, Molly, Run. When Henry Thomas starts out, he does a, almost a rhythm like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, dun, dun. Then he does one and he starts singing. And to me, that's that's a horn vamp. Mm. He knows his rhythm, but he does an intro, but he just strums it. He does jung, 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 jing, 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 jung, jing, 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 jing. I went down to Huntsville 
the song and that's something that is you know to me is very indicative of where he's coming from mentally when he's presenting these songs to the the recording machine is that 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 would give you the intro and then then he can begin to tell his story and so that's something that like the there are a couple of other songs i'll bring up that that uh that speak on that a little bit more directly but with the string band stuff so run molly run is the only one that i would classify as just a straight string band number that he does with no quills but the other three are are quills show i mean showcases of masterful quills and so he has the fox and the hounds which of course is uh, the same name that the harmonica number that sonny terry and and d ford bailey and many of the great pioneers of of blues harmonica and country harmonica all played and so he does a quills version of of the fox and the hounds and it it lends itself to um, a fiddle tune called the Cackle and Hen. And um, if you've seen the movie Louie Bluey, that's the that's the number that Louie Bluey's playing on the fiddle when he does all the really great uh, bow jumps and all that stuff. Mm. So it's the same melody, but again, with the quills being a pentatonic instrument without without having all of the notes of a diatonic scale, he implies the Cackle and Hen through the quills. Mm. And then breaks into the square dance calls. And he says, oh, Liza, oh, little girl, I'm going home. If I live, don't get killed. Goodbye. Fare thee well. He just he goes into this whole sort of again. It's like it's very much hip hop and James Brown. It's it's, it's That's funny. Yeah. The words aren't necessarily sensical to these numbers, except for Charm and Betsy. But they when he's singing them, it's like, you know, it's like James Brown. When he's singing popcorn, popcorn doesn't necessarily mean anything literally. But when he's is saying it, he's implying all of the the things that popcorn means. It's very multifaceted when he's telling you about popcorn or right. or, uh, you know, a mama popcorn, because that's another sequel. And he's talking about mama popcorn instead of just popcorn, you know, <laughs> right. No, for, seriously. <laughs> yeah. When and when Henry Thomas is strumming again, as you mentioned, with these long square dance songs, Henry Thomas is in the open tuning and he's not doing the complex things that people like Charlie Patton are doing, but he's running bass notes. So he's his sign is his rhythm is do 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 be do 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 you know so it's almost like a combination of a umpa band or if you think of mexican tejano music or you think of just um square dance music in general still fiddle and banjo 
playing bands and square dance and old time bands still play this way now, but it's just, he's driving a, the guitar lines really hard in the background while this, while the quills just push right into the front. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I even trying to just, transcribe the words that he's singing for these square dance calls it's so appealing to listen to the quills i find i'll put the record on and i won't even remember to transcribe the words because it's, <laughs> it's almost hypnotic and i forget that i was listening to the song almost in a way you know <laughs> no, I, I totally understand it and that's an extreme dynamic this yet and you are a quills player I, I would love for you to explain to the audience what this instrument is and and its connection to to uh, i guess our tradition in this land absolutely well you know when i first heard henry thomas many years ago i just heard the sound of the quills but i had no idea what it was so the first song i ever heard was fish and blues and i'll talk about that a little bit later in terms of the content of fish and blues as a composition but when i heard those quills being played it just knocked me out and i said how can i do that 
how can I make the sound and what is the sound? And so I began to search. And so the, the quills are a panpipe. So if we think of like Greek mythology, the panpipe are a series of canes that are of different lengths, almost like the sound is almost like if you blow over a bottle and you make a sound blowing over a bottle and then mm-hmm. you put a little water in it, it makes the bottle a little shorter and the tone is a little higher. And you and if you make if you were to have six bottles with different lengths, you could make a whole melody with all of those bottles. And so the quills are built on the same idea. You have different quills that are, I don't know, let's say uh maybe 10 inches, 10 inches long, all the way down to maybe four inches long. And I have nine of them on the one that, that I have built. And that has a pentatonic scale that is a minor scale, um, not to get too technical on the musical notes parts for people that aren't players, but it's it, it works perfectly for songs in minor keys, as well as certain types of three chord songs, which is the basis of most blues and the basis of most country music. And most, most types of folk music have three chords. And so these quills fit perfectly within the spectrum of notes. And with and so with the quills, they don't know exactly where Henry Thomas might have gotten them from. But with the cane reeds that are on the bottoms in Texas, there's um there's there's just a, an ancient there's an ancient uh, tradition of quills making. And this is in Spain, this is in parts of India, this is in the Congo, this is in um, over in the Southwest and in the Andes. They have all sorts of quills, very different types of quills with different scales, different uh, um, makeups. You know, like some of the Andean musicians have quills that are seven feet tall, wow. like bass notes. And I mean, it's it's quite an elaborate tradition. So it's and and so however it made its way to Texas uh, for Henry Thomas to reach them, he was able to adapt this into the folk songs, which, again, the hit Sid Hemphill and Joe Patterson, the other Quills players, they they were playing Quills and they had a band playing with them or they had a shaker with them, but they were not playing guitar and Quills. So Henry Thomas is unique that he is taking the guitar style that he developed and and started to adapt it around his quills playing, almost like how harmonica players tend to play guitar afterward. Like someone like Honey Boy Edwards mm-hmm. started out as a harmonica guy, and then he realized he could play guitar. So then he got a rack, and then you know he retained his great harmonica skills, but then bringing the guitar, and he got to be a great guitar player too. So he was multifaceted. So he's hitting them coming and going musically. And Henry Thomas, in many ways, you can tell he did something very similar. Even the the one picture that's come up of Henry Thomas in 2014, they found one picture of this guy. Mm. Before then, they only had advertisements and sort of the, um, at that time, they would kind of do almost, it's almost like a photocopy of the actual picture, and then they would print it in the newspaper. Right. It's a really good quality picture. And so the first time that this uh, photo came out, what I see when I see this picture, and hopefully you'll have a picture of, uh, you, you'll get this picture from of Henry Thomas so that folks at, on your show can see it. It looks like he has a little leather satchel that sits on top of his guitar because for me i invented a a harmonica rack that played with the quills because i'll I'll go into that in a minute how i learned how to play it but henry thomas has the quills sitting in a little satchel so he has to lift lift his guitar up to play the quills and puts them down because as you can imagine with this somewhat it's not a big instrument but it's big enough to where if it's in front of your face it will garble how you sound when you sing and um one of the things i thought was so distinctive with henry thomas is that he could sing and he sounded really clear like the quills were never in his way mm. but i saw this picture 
it it gave me a whole different impression of how he made these records compared to it being in a harmonica rag. So my personal story came when I went to the Black Banjo Gathering in 2005 and I met Mike Seeger. And so maybe uh, 2001 or two, I found Mike Seeger's album. It was called Solo Old Time Country Music. It was on Rounder Records. And part of the idea around this album with Mike was that he said, I've learned all these traditional songs. I know all these styles. And this album is going to be me freely associating all of these styles and mixing them up and making unique arrangements that sound uh, very casual, like a real folk music recording. Mm -hmm. But they're going to be featuring different types of things that you would not have seen in the field. So he, he created a creative album based around strictly folk music elements. And so this is a very brilliant record and the very first song he plays on there is um, a song from a black banjo player by the name of Jimmy Struthers and the song is called Tennessee Dog and so Mike features the banjo and plays the quills so uh, Jimmy Struthers did not play the quills so Mike added this Henry Thomas aspect onto this particular song and it's a great recording I mean it really just uh, changed my life because after hearing Henry Thomas I finally found a recording of a contemporary musician who played this instrument mm. so it, it was in high quality it sounded like Henry Thomas and from there I, I was devoted to trying to figure out how to get that sound so when I met Mike Seeger the first thing I asked him was where do you get the quill <laughs> and, and at that time he was working with an Andean musician he had met in the 70s by the name of Edmund Bado and Edmund's now retired from making quills for the most part but I got in touch with him and we talked and he started to make quills like Mike had uh, for me. And so then I became the forebearer for this uh, style of quills that he and Mike had invented to play this Henry Thomas material. Wow. And so, so then after that, I spent a lot of time talking with Mike about how to play the quills. What should I do? What should I not do? And, you know, cause it's a, it's an instrument that's very loud, uh, but you don't have to put a lot of effort into it. Like harmonica, you have to blow the air completely into right. it. And the quill, they respond very uh, very quickly to just a little bit of air and things like that were things that Mike taught me about playing and and I, I've then after that I, I've taken in my own sort of knowledge of uh, different types of uh, music Caribbean music and different types of African music and added those aesthetics on top of what I've know what I know about the traditional styles of African American playing but I try to imply you know like um like I, I've recorded about 10 Henry Thomas numbers altogether in my recorded career so far out of the 23. And so for me, I, I've always tried to pull some of my solos to imply some of the things like and get some syncop syncopation right. that would imply, you know, Joseph Spence or uh, any of these type of uh, Caribbean players that are sort of half country blues, half Caribbean music that, that you know, folks that know the stuff will will know what I'm referring. Correct. to. Correct. And even even someone like Henry, uh, I mean, uh, Charlie Patton is another example of someone that gave me a lot to think about in terms of Henry Thomas's music because Charlie Patton is halfway in the world of Henry Thomas, but he's the next step forward because he's working with Henry Sims and doing uh, fiddle and guitar music, and then he's also doing 
a sort of a banjo style of guitar playing on some of his recordings mm. while doing full on blues in the way that we would think of conventionally as blues. So Charlie Patton is also a guy that sort of reaches into this world like Henry Thomas. So uh, again, Henry Thomas is very much more rooted in a folk song ballad as well as a string band form and then also pre-blues. But again, we'll get into that into the next section. Okay, that was such a loaded statement and I'm trying not to stop you because I... I just want to say, hey, wait a minute. Such a <laughs> because it, it, just to make it simple so we can keep going to feed the, the audience, the melting pot or, or music becoming a melting pot, I should say, for, for several um, ethnicities, regions and, and, and cultures obviously is not a new concept. Uh-huh. Right. Because now just based on your initial statement, we're not sure how he got his hands on these quills that obviously has roots in different corners of the the planet, for that matter. This is really intense. OK, absolutely. So, I found one. In- oh, yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. You found what? Well, with the quills, just to maybe mention one final thing that I, I got to thinking about. I was out in Sacramento doing a gig last year, and uh, Sacramento is the end of the Transcontinental Divide and the Transcontinental Railroad, which is why Sacramento is the capital of California. Mm. And right when I stopped off in Old Town Sacramento, the first thing I noticed is that there was an Andean music shop right in the town square. And just to see that there was just an Andean shop, that they had a bunch of quills and all sorts of stuff. Stuff that was, you know, very much in 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 the South American tradition. It was interesting to see that in the town square, and and knowing that train travel is so prevalent within all of Henry Thomas's music, it it even that notion in of itself got it has my mind reeling, wondering where he could have got this instrument. Mm. So now I have to see. You always do this, Dom. I have to ask you this question. <laughs> <laughs> Because, um, how can I word this? The, okay, perfect. The popular story of, this is uh, my term, African-American traditional music, because it kind of encapsulates all these things we're speaking about. One of the biggest or most popular pieces of information starts with the term Delta Blues, right? Mm -hmm. Majority of people, I believe... Uh, get the misconception because they say the the Delta and the term Mississippi is connected to the Delta because it's not just the, the state of Mississippi, but the Mississippi River runs through this thing. I, I would like to ask you, is the misconception of everything starting in Mississippi because the term Delta Blues, but the term Delta Blues actually is referring to the entire Delta region because we're talking about nine different states possibly, right? Absolutely. And it's really tough to describe. This is the reason why they've simplified it down to it's the Delta Blues is because it's really tough to describe the social and the also the geographic landscape of the United States. Because remember from 1803, which is, you know, this is this is like 100 years before Henry Thomas is has uh, ever stepped into the studio. You have the Louisiana Purchase. And from 1803 up to 1920, they're building the United States as we know it. And, it, and this includes a number of wars and a number of generations of all sorts of stuff happening. 
happening, but it's all in a single through line. And we have to imagine that actually you had a great podcast with uh, Chris Thomas King, and he had a great word, pre-literate, mm. not illiterate, but pre-literate culture. We had, you know, folks have to remember that, you know, there are, there are African-American communities that didn't have written histories until like the 90s you know they just were wasn't really out there in the mainstream for people and we're just getting to the spot where folks are even know that they should be asking let alone getting the information from elder statesmen and women because uh you know i i see that there's always um there are always wonderful church women that have been around for a hundred and eight, nine years. And, you know, it's like for you real, know, <laughs> you know, like women that like grew up and they're like, I remember when we used a horse and buggy and then they saw the Internet, you know. And so there are, <laughs> it's, it's a it's a small demographic these days. But to know that if they weren't there, their parents were. And, and so one of the things I've been finding with this history that's so amazing is boat travel goes up the Mississippi River. So if you're going from Europe and you want to get to St. Louis, you're going to go down the eastern seaboard, go to New Orleans and go straight up to Chicago and then cut over to St. Louis. So there's there are a lot of stops along the way. So the Delta in its own way is the is the transportation um, center for the United States. And then later on, the, the railroads come in. And so the Yellow Dog comes in and right. a whole other movement that comes from that. So the travel of the Delta is indicative in some ways of America, especially going into the World War II. And that's when you start having like, you know, like that's when Muddy starts going up north and also like B.B. King and those guys. And they create a new style of blues that is, you know, it's old, but at the same time, it's it's also very progressive. Right. In, in regard of how they recorded it. Yeah. It, and, and the Delta isn't particularly a 100 percent backward moving area. It's kind of like, you know, it's it, it's rooted in tradition, but it's also like, you know, they're 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 automating uh, the they're automating the industry down there during the the Second World War, and the people are moving out of the old rural parts so that they can go to the urban centers, and so that's part of why the blues starts to develop. But that's this is also the reason why W. C. Handys is in Memphis, while. Muddy Waters is in Chicago. So we have, you know, there's a quite an elaborate history because if, if we pull it back just a little bit to W.C. Handy, this is when we start finding the, the next section, Proto-Folk Blues, that's mm. another part of Henry Thomas's repertoire. Mm. There aren't a lot of the songs that I would just depict as proto-folk blues, but two of the songs he records, the only one he recorded twice is uh, the song Don't Leave Me Here, which he also recorded as Don't Ease Me In. Now, this song is related to the, the song I'm Alabama Bound, which is a folk song, but it also was it was copyrighted and composed by a fellow named Robert Hoffman in 1909. So there's a great book for folks that want to get deeper into it. There's a great book called Long Gone Blues, which talks about the popularity and the rise of blues in sheet music. And so this is a whole different sort of scope of how the blues uh, comes into popular music. This isn't through recordings, but these are through live performances. Because before then, if you wanted to hear any new songs, you had to see that performer live. You couldn't replicate it and you couldn't, you could describe it to people or you could try to sing the song. But the only way that you'd ever get that song again is if you saw that person again. And so we're, we're seeing sort of the complete 
convergence of live performance and recorded performance. Because also a thing that Mayo Williams said that struck me when I read an interview with him was that when he first recorded Papa Charlie Jackson, who was a guy he met on Maxwell Street busking, he said that Papa Charlie had a great voice that he could record that people would really like. Because for him at that time, there were so many big shows that were being done in Black Vaudeville that you really couldn't record it. And the people to him didn't have great voices that translated on record. So Papa Mm. Really was his first step into trying to find a really nice voice that he could he could uh, record that would convey itself coming out of a speaker. And so Papa Charlie, Wait, became, time out. I'm sorry, I, yeah. I, because what you just said struck me. Could it be that he was looking for a voice that, if recorded, it sounded like he was speaking just to the people or person sitting down listening to that record? Where when you're at a, a, a big to do performance it is purposeful for a big to-do performance but he found someone who can actually relay a message to just each individual listening does that make sense that that yes and you're you're absolutely on the right track with that with because again remembering that everything's content driven this is the first time that anyone in the world can hear someone from any other part of the world and get a private concert from them this is the first Mm. time you've ever had something like this happen so when you have uh, folks from Mississippi or East Texas, as it is with Henry Thomas, this is the first time you're hearing rural Texas music of this nature coming out of your speakers. And it's it's blowing your mind if you're into it. Um, it might underwhelm you if you're not into this type of rural music, because also people kind of look down on this stuff, which is just to throw a little side note in there. This is what the Lomaxes are are working with, because remember, Henry Thomas is recording in 1927 and the Lomaxes are going into the field in 1933 and 1934, five years after. And their big manifesto is that this popular music is totally wiping out the folk traditions that we've always known all of our lives. And we're trying to capture anything we can, which is why they went into the prisons. They went to the Mm. because they said the sinful people, because they found the church people didn't want to sing any of that stuff because they were they they had gone religious. And they found that, well, if we go to the sinful people in the prisons, we can find the older inmates and they will have the old folk songs still in their minds. And that's why they went straight to the prisons. It wasn't necessarily because they wanted the prisons were their favorite place to go to. But they knew that there would be retentions of older song traditions way back in the prisons, because, of course, John Lone. Lomax. People forget this all the time. John Lomax did the slave narrative recordings. He was yes, he did. Gay, you know, and and for all the bad things people like to say about him, he had a knowledge of where people were coming from and their narratives. So he asked more diverse questions in a certain regard because of his previous work as a government official. And so, uh, so Henry Thomas again moving it out of the Lomaxes. No, that's okay, because I literally just told somebody that yesterday. Yeah, so pushing them back out of the way, because again, this is where we're going to have another confluence later on in, in, when, in talking about this. Okay. So, so back to commercial music, we have Henry Thomas. Uh, he does a couple of numbers that, again, Texas Easy Street is one that I recorded on my most recent album, Black Cowboys. And then um, there's another one, Love and Bay. Which was a great album, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. Bad. 
had him down I'm going back to Texas Live on easy street When you see me coming Don't call my name When you see me coming Don't call my name I'm going back to Texas Live on easy street Thomas also was a big part of the structure of that album musically because of all of these different styles he's representing. Because again, when you start to delve into it, and then also you start going into some of the work that um, that Abbott and Seroff have done in their books, uh, Out of Sight, Ragged But Right, and then the most recent book, The Original Blues, you start to find that there's a very elaborate um, all African-American black vaudeville scene that precedes recorded music. And it actually gets sidelined ultimately by, by records in a mm. similar way that we are now seeing performers that are being, uh, being, uh, uh, that are out there, out there in the digital world. 
and they are presenting a completely different aesthetic quality of how the industry should be run. And Black Vaudeville, they couldn't keep up with the craze for blues. And so blues essentially takes out this very elaborate Black Vaudeville scene. The one thing that is rough about this, if people look back on it, is that the men were all blackface performers and comedians. And you had other types of performance, but they were circus acts because the nature of the traveling performance is like take the P.T. Barnum circus and there's a sideshow. And on the side of a sideshow, there's a black show. And that's where all the performers were working. So there is a sense of this sort of like, I don't want to say the grotesque, but there is a sense of this is a minstrel show on the side of a circus. And so with that, People found dignity in being able to uplift themselves through that. And then, of course, women singers, first through song, uh, shows that were called Creole shows, they were able to present song chanteuses that were singing ragtime. And then after that, you had the blues diva come in, or they used to call them coon shouters because they, they specialized in coon songs. And you had Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, who started as coon song singers. But when they became popular themselves on record, 15, 20 years after they their heyday, they became blues divas. And that became one of the ways that ultimately the blues kind of put the final nail into the coffin of blackface minstrelsy. Very right. Good. And it was and they actually, for whatever reason, call it classic blues. And then it morphed into big bands and jazz, correct? Yeah, because jazz is is coming up in this very same era. And it's coming up because these traveling shows, they had orchestras and bands. W.C. Handy was part of a minstrel show. You know, yes, he it's was. Not, it's not a minstrel show in the sense that, because again, the imagery is different for every single era. So you have to be really careful with, with how you're associating one part of it to the other. Like when you we think of W.C. Handy, again, P.T. Barnum had a fellow named P.G. Lowry, um, who was the orchestra leader for his his band. And so P.G. Lowry, even though he was doing light classics as well as some early ragtime and was bringing in some of the hot music that would become jazz, he wasn't jazz. But with that being said, he was becoming more popular than the sideshow after a certain point because everybody knew he was the, the most popular black band leader. And he was almost like, like again, like when James Brown comes to town. He right. And so everybody would run to see P.G. Lowry. And then W.C. Handy references him as one of his influences as he moves forward. So when we think of Handy, he's continuing on a tradition of being a proud band leader in the John Philip Sousa mold, but a sepia-toned or African-American version or a Black version of John Philip Sousa. So this takes us into this whole other digression into James Reese Europe and to all these other people, which we'll get into in the next section. Hubie Blake. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> so and just just to uh, put a cap on that real quick, it was, it was ironic and odd at the same time to find out that Black Swan Records, which was ultimately started by W.C. Handy and his partner, when his partner kind of took from them, so to speak, they weren't. They they were trying to dismantle the coon shouts and the blues divas and make it sound more uh, appealing. I'll say to a mass audience rather than to a black audience. Correct? Yes. And one of the ways I've because I've spent a lot of time, especially since our last conversation, trying to understand how this sort of hypocritical and also uh, contradictory juxtaposition could exist 
and mm. still be the progressive idea. Because when I st- when I started to delve into the history of people like W, uh, the, to not just W. C. Handy, but into Burt Williams and George Walker, I, I was trying to figure out what were these guys thinking. And then you have a guy like Will Marion Cook, who's like a super well respected composer of, in the classical vein. But when he became a popular songwriter, he wrote. You know, again, the words are rough. The words are real rough on some of this stuff. And anybody can read it now. And even back then, it was that rough. People people weren't deaf to how horrible some of the songs were lyrically. They were, you know, just as offended. This was actually the point. And that's one of the things that happened is once emancipation came, um, minstrel shows took on African-American performers and there started to be black troops that said, we're the real thing. You've been hearing, you've been seeing the fake thing and now we've got the real thing. And then they began to work on the, on the circuit in the same circuits worldwide. And they were presenting the real thing. And but they and they ultimately superseded all of the guys that came before them. But then you you have people like Burt Williams who come in and they say, we want to do an up-to-date composition style. We're not plantation. With that being said, they created a new style of, of music called the Coon Song. And that was supposed to be a more humanistic composition style, but it didn't end up going that way. When it got popular, it turned into this awful style of music that took the existing stereotypes and made them even more offensive. Mm. And But at the same time, these composers are using horrible words to convey beautifully sophisticated musical ideas in a pseudo-classical vein, almost like modern composition. And so it wasn't until they took the words out and banned the words that you have Scott Joplin. Right. You know, so, Blake, etc. So now to bring it back to Henry Thomas, because you said something earlier in this podcast that actually fits perfectly right here, that Henry Thomas took all those words out as he presented these songs. Well, you know, in the Abbott and Seroff book, Ragged But Right, it's there's an article from Bob Cole, who was actually the first African-American performer to make the first all black run musical comedy on Broadway. Mm. It was called A Trip to Coontown, but it was a sort of like a travel log style musical that showcased all these different performers. And so Bob Cole and his partner, James Rosamond Johnson, were um, they were a duo and they were the first guys to show up in tuxedos and refused to do blackface. And they made their way through the vaudeville scene. And ultimately, Bob Cole, like worked himself to death, literally. Mm. Uh, but he refused to perform in blackface, and he even came up with a whiteface character that was an Irishman. And mm. look him up. It's, it's a really um, bizarre but amazing story. But with that, he was one of the ones that set the trend. But in 1909, there's an article, a big article in the Indianapolis Freeman where he says, we got to stop using this word, C-O-O-N. We got to get out of here with this word because we started it out to be a way to get past everybody else, but now it's gone too far. We got to pull it back, people. And it's a really elaborate article about how he and his cohort, which included Burt Williams and all of these guys, started this big elaborate chain of this composition style, and now they're regretting it because they're finding that it's going beyond just the theater. It's going onto the streets, and it's it's affecting people. And so there was a conscious effort uh, by 
the people who put that out there to say, okay, let's stop. And by the 1920s, you start seeing that that's what happens. Uh, Gus Cannon's another one like that too. He has several songs. Uh, Frank Stokes is another guy like that, where there are songs that in their original form, there are quite a few offensive words, but when they record them in the twenties, that's, that's out the window. Mm. Okay. So so it's it's almost safe to say that a lot of uh, black musicians that were able to record in can I say the late teens through the twenties all got that memo, even if they were quote unquote traveling hobos and took this uh, a serious absolutely because we have to think of you know like by nineteen oh nine we're thinking of people like Jack Johnson are a part of uh, he's from Galveston Texas so that's part of the landscape Marcus Garvey is part of the landscape. Um, right. Washington. So we have quite a bit of progress that's happened by the time the late 1920s come along to where people are a lot more conscious of these things compared to it just being compositions that are being pumped out and people are just doing the popular songs without even thinking about it. And so Again, ragtime emerges as a popular form once they take the words out. And so all of the ragtime music becomes something that can be lauded as a, a strong part of African-American culture. And then, of course, you know, one of the uh, the greatest forebears of ragtime, U.B. Blake, he takes it into a different direction along with his part of So you have Shuffle Along, which essentially kind of kickstarts the Harlem Renaissance and the jazz era in, in, in a type of way. But knowing that two steps before that, these guys are being backed by these fellows that have this offensive type of music to our modern ears. But these are guys that are pushing forward and saying, take it, take it, take it forward. And so even Bob Pohl's partner, James uh, Rosamond Johnson, his younger brother, James Weldon Johnson, was a he was a co-writer uh, of many of the compositions that Bob Cole and, and his older brother, James Rosamond, wrote. But James Weldon would uh, his last composition he did actually before he got into politics was lift every voice and sing. Correct. This goes, I mean, this, this, this goes dead on into the roots of the ideologies that would come later. Cause of course the Harlem Renaissance is, is about a pan African American experience, but we have to remember that all these communities had to come, come from somewhere. Like um, it even leads right into the next section, which is pop blues, which is popular blues compared to folk blues. So music of the popular stage that is blues based or is has some 12 bar blues, but there's this kind of like gray area for pop blues. Then there's, well, you know, I'm sorry to cut you off. We have to tackle that because a lot of musicians, again, not to be divisive, but a lot of white blues musicians throughout the last 30 to 40 years who not just play, but uh, teach or express certain histories of the blues, scholars included, uh, make a big to do about something called the 12 bar blues shuffle. Mm -hmm. So does that play a part in what you're about to describe? It will a little bit later because Henry Thomas, he only has one 12 bar blues song he does in his whole repertoire, but he okay. has several blues numbers he does. And that'll be the next section after the pop blues. Uh, I'll go into the straight, more of a, the straight blues. Okay. Um, but the, the first one in the pop blues is the fishing blues. That's his most well-known number of all time. It was on the anthology of American folk music. Taj Mahal recorded it um, on his uh, giant steps in the old folks home album. Uh, the love and spoonful recorded it. So John Sebastian has featured fishing blues for years and I've even recorded it. Um, and I've developed my own version of playing it. 
Actually, uh, I have to give a shout out to Barry Mazur in, in Nashville. He was the first person to tell me the writer of Fishing Blues. And that was a fellow named Chris Smith. Mm. He copyrighted it in 1911. And the song was just called Fishing. Um, Chris Smith wrote a song called Ball in the Jack, which is a really famous jazz number from the early parts of jazz, if you're an old time jazz fan. And the Abbott and Seraph also reference Chris Smith because Chris Smith was part of the cohort of songwriters that was under Burt Williams and George Walker during the time that they were uh, in their heyday on, uh, on Broadway. Mm. So this guy's a songwriter that's already connected to this previous world we've been talking about directly. And uh, again, to reference back to long gone blues by Peter Muir, which I referenced with Al- I'm Alabama bound. It talks about one of the theories they have about Chris Smith beginning to do the blues. And so Chris Smith was writing uh, ragtime numbers for Williams and Walker. And in 1911, um, I believe 1910 and 1911, uh, the first the first Southern vaude- black vaudevillian to make a big stir in the entire scene was a fellow by the name of Butler May, known as String Beans. Okay. And so String Beans comes to Chicago. He's from Alabama. He grew up 
near Hank Williams, where Hank Williams grew up. And and so he comes up to Chicago and begins to perform with Sweetie Mae, who is his singing partner and his wife. And they perform and it creates such a stir because what he does is um, there's one description of Spring Beans that says he played the piano and he fell to his knees and was able to play the piano at the same time and uh, do the, the snake hips is what they called them as he was getting back up from the piano. So he was almost like a contortionist who could improvise blues. And his big line that the, um, even W.C. Handy and Abby Niles referenced back in their book, The Blues Anthology, they mentioned that his big line was, if anybody heard you who composed this song, just tell him the sweet Papa string beans and he's here and gone. And that was his tagline. And people hated the man because he wasn't using composition. He was literally shooting from the hip, telling it like it was, and he was telling it to people about the social situations in a form that would be offensive enough for people, but it got people inspired and stirred up to want to do it too. So after String Beans comes along, the first blues song that's written by Chris Smith, it's just called The Blues and I'm Too Mean to Cry, was written four or five months after String Beans appears. And this is followed by Memphis Blues. This is followed by the Baby Seals Blues. And Baby Seals was another very famous vaudevillian. And even a black-faced minstrel by the name of Lasses White, he writes a song called the N-I-G-G-E-R Blues, which does not feature that word in the composition but he copyrighted it for the controversy. And so in doing that, the melody of this song is the blues ain't nothing but a good man feeling bad. And it's the worst old feeling that I most ever had. So that's another famous motif. So the material is out there and people are starting to compose this stuff by 1910, 1911, 1912. Again, going back to the John Lomax, these are the people that John Lomax is fighting against these publishers and Mm. trying to get the actual folk songs before these guys take everything over and so, and, and kind of ev- uh, evolve it into this commercial sphere where it's it's becomes um, formatted rather than the the Mince Lipscombs and the Henry Thomas versions. Is this what we're saying? It, exactly. Except for the Mance Lipscombs and all those guys, they're playing songs like "Shine on Harvest Moon" and they're keeping certain pop songs in their repertoire, but they're not necessarily doing the exact blues compositions because blues is improvised and so once blues becomes popular everybody then just starts improvising their own blues and then the blues proliferates in a way that is so rap rampant because it is the first time you're having people directly having a one-to-one message because a lot of this early pop stuff it's not one-to-one it's right it's the there's a fourth wall because it's theater so they're not directing they're not talking to the audience directly so the blues comes in and it's the first popular form you're having that is saying hey you i'm having a bad time and this is what i'm feeling about and the audience has to react to that thank you for tuning in to jack dapper blues podcast make sure you tune in next week for episode three of henry thomas texas blues legend with our featured recurring guest the american songster dom flemings Make sure to continue bluesing and continue raising awareness of African-American traditional music and the black experience.